Let's open up our Bibles this morning to Psalm 11. We go back to uh, some Psalms. As I said uh, last year, we'll probably be in and out of the Psalms for uh, many years because there are so many Psalms, so many great passages there. So uh, don't be surprised over the next uh, 10 years or so, as the Lord allows, we'll be in and out and in and out and um, we'll probably cover uh, different parts of, of the same psalm in different sermons. So some psalms like Psalm 11, uh, technically we're going to do the entire psalm, but really we're only focusing on two verses here. Um, then uh, one year we'll preach through Psalm 119. Uh, because it goes on and on and on and on. <laughs> okay. All right, so if you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to be able to come and to read your Word and to know that through the power of the, your Holy Spirit, it, it comes alive in our hearts and our eyes are open to it. It is far more than just, just any other book. So we pray that, that our eyes would be clear and our mind would be sharp according to your power, that we would understand it, be able to live it out. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 11, for the choir director, a Psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to, to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness the upright will behold his face. This is the inspired word of God for us today. So please be seated. You've probably heard the, the phrase or seen it in some store, in God we trust, but all others pay cash. Okay? Uh, it sums up what many in, in our country believe, what many in the world believe. There is one and only one unmovable unshakable and constant in this world and everything and everyone else is not subject to the same level of trust okay oh you say i trust randy but i trust god so which one do you trust more oh god okay let me answer that for you so you don't have to think about it and we as a nation still give at least lip service to that because if you pull out uh, any of your money uh, you'll find the words in god we trust on there. Now, I looked that up and, and wanted to know how it came about. So, uh, from the U.S. Department of Treasury, it states the motto, In God We Trust, was placed on United States coins largely because of the increased religious sentiment existing during the, the recent unpleasantness between the states. It doesn't say that, but you know, uh, who was it? It was uh, Dave Sadler says, No, it's the War of Northern Aggression. Okay. All right, so you get the idea. The Secretary of the Treasury, Salmon, or Salmon P. Chase, received many appeals from devout persons throughout the country urging that the United States recognize the deity on United States coins. 
From Treasury Department records, it appears that the first such appeal came in a letter dated November 13, 1861. It was written to Secretary Chase by the Reverend M.R. Watkinson, Minister of the Gospel from Ridleyville, Pennsylvania. And he writes, Dear Sir, you are about to submit your annual report to the Congress respecting the affairs of the national finances. One fact touching our currency has hitherto been seriously overlooked. I mean the recognition of the Almighty God in some form on our coins. You are probably a Christian. What if our republic were not shattered beyond re reconstruction? Would not the antiquaries of succeeding centuries rightly reason from our past that we were a heathen nation? What I propose is that instead of the goddess of liberty, we shall have next inside the 13 stars a ring inscribed with the words perpetual union. Within the ring, the all-seeing eye crowned with a halo. Beneath the side, the American flag bearing in its field stars equal to the number of the states united. In the folds of the bars, the word God, liberty, law. This would make a beautiful coin to which no possible citizen could object. I like that. You know, who could object to this? This would relieve us from the ignominy of heathenism. Okay? This would place us openly under the divine protection we have personally claimed. From my hearth, I have felt our national shame in disowning God as not the least of our present national disasters. To you first, I address a subject that must be agitated. I mean, who writes like that, huh? A subject must be agitated. Well, as a result, Secretary Chase instructed James Pollock, director of the Mint at Philadelphia, to prepare a motto in a letter dated November 20th, just a few days after he received that letter. Dear Sir, no nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe except in his defenses. The trust of our people in God should be declared on a national coin. You will cause a device to be prepared without unnecessary delay with a motto expressing in the fewest and tersest words possible this national recognition. Well, it was found in, a, in an act of Congress dated in 1837 that prescribed mottos and devices that should be placed on the coins. And they hadn't been placed there yet, but Congress had, had already acted in, in this kind of general way that if we do this, this is what it is. So the first time In God We Trust appeared on our coins in 1864 on the newly minted two-cent piece. And by 1909, it was included in most other coins. During the height of the Cold War, in 1955, Dwight Eisenhower signed Public Law 84140, making it mandatory that all coinage and paper currency display the motto, In God We Trust. All right. Scripture says he's our fortress. My rock, my shield, my defender, my strong tower, he is ever and always present. He is unmovable, he is unshakable, he is the God in whom I trust. Is this always the case for you? Now, now, if we answer right here, we go, well, this is what Scripture says, and this is what I believe, so yes, that is always the case. But when we look at our lives, there are things that seem to be a little bit out of control. When we look at society, we see things that we go, well, how can this happen if God is in charge? How can this happen if he is all the things that he says? I mean, there's this, uh, is this, do I always feel that he is my fortress, my rock? Do I always feel he is unmovable, unshakable? I know these things. Do I always live them out? God himself says, this is the way that I am. Now, is that how we understand him? 
when we look at the world around us? Are there ever times when you wonder if he's really in control, if he's even paying attention to you? Lord, are you, you, you watching what's going on in my life? You paying any attention to me? Of course, I'll jump to the end, and the answer is yes. He knows exactly what's going on in your life. He's got a plan for you in the midst of those things. The question is, am I ready for that plan? Am I ready to understand it? Am I ready to receive it and accept it? So go to our psalm here, Psalm 11. It says to the choir director, so there's no real... Um, particular application to this as, as a single event. Uh, it's just for the choir director uh, and it is to be sung, but there are some ideas about the events that might be behind this. Okay, uh, There's nothing guaranteed, but a couple suggestions are here. It might be one of those times when Saul is trying to kill David. Okay, uh, when uh, the king who is, uh, was chosen by the Lord and then the Lord turned his back on him and David was ordained as the next king uh, and Saul is, is, you know, he's kind of crazy and jealous and has moments of up and down. This might be one of the moments where he really wants to kill David and David's friends are saying, flee to the mountains, get out of Jerusalem, get out of town and flee. Uh, it might be one of those times uh, or the time when uh, Absalom, David's son, in particular, is really rising against his father, and, and people are saying, now's the time to leave, and now's the time to leave, and eventually David did leave, but it might be one of those earlier times, or it might be this time. So this time is, you have to turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 22, and this is one of those things that uh, if I had to pick one time, this might be the reference that I would choose uh, to the event that was going on, Psalm 20, or 1 Samuel 22. Now, this is one of those times when, when Saul has been trying to get David, and, and, and this seems to be a little bit of a lull in, in Saul's aggressiveness. How about this? But it, Saul's eyes and his, his uh, jealousy of David never seems to waver. It just seems to have moments where he's applying it more than others. How about that? So, uh, in 1 Samuel 22, start in... Uh, Oh, let's go to verse 6, okay, and we'll, we'll read from there. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. And Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjaminites, Benjamites, Will the son of Jesse also give to all you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? For all you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. And there is none of you who is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servants against me to lie in ambush as it is this day. Saul's kind of paranoid here. Um, and then verse 9. Then Doeg... The Edomite, and he, he makes it clear he is not an Israelite, he is an Edomite, who was standing by the servants of Saul, answered and said, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, giving him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Well, then the king sent someone to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's household, the priests who were in Nob, and all of them came to the king. 
So this is David's kind of on the run. He goes there. He's, he's really kind of wiped out. He has nothing else. And he goes to Nob and, and sees Ahimelech. Okay, verse 11. Then the king sent someone to, or, or verse 12. And Saul said, listen now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, here I am, Lord. Saul then said to him, why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise up against me by lying in ambush as it is this day? Well, then Ahimelech, and, and you can just see, the, see it going on, going, he kind of scratches his head. says, Ahimelech answered the king and said, and who among all your servants is as faithful as David? Even the king's son-in-law, who's captain over your guard and is honored in your house. Did I just begin to inquire of God for him today? Far be it from me. Do not let the king impute anything to his servant or to any of the household of my father, for your servant knows nothing at all of this whole affair. When David came to Ahimelech, Ahimelech just assumed that, he, that David and Saul were still real tight. Because, you know, word had not traveled to Nob that Saul wanted to kill him, so Ahimelech assumed that David was still uh, Saul's uh, in his good graces. But the king said, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put these priests of the Lord to death, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew that he was fleeing and did not reveal it to me. Ooh. It's like, you know, he, he turns to his bodyguard and says, kill all these priests of the Lord. And he even says, priests of the Lord in particular. But the servants of the king were not willing to put forth their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. You can imagine Saul, you know, the vein in his head is popping out and he's, can't you kill these people? You know, and they go, no, no, we're not raising our hands to the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, and Doeg was an Edomite, you, turn around and attack the priest. And Doeg the Edomite said, well, sure, I don't care about the priest. And he turned around and killed him. And not only did he attack the priest, he killed that day 85 priests. That means men who wore the linen ephod. 85 other priests who were with Ahimelech who came at the request of Saul. So Doeg turns around and he just slaughters them all. And then he goes and he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen and donkey and sheep. He struck them with the edge of the sword. So Doeg, at the behest of Saul, goes to Nob and kills everything. Everything and everybody except one, one son of Ahimelech, um, survived to go and tell the story. And Saul orders it. The king, the one who is responsible for the law, the one who is responsible for seeing that justice is done, the one who is, uh, in a sense, the, 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 the example of righteousness for the entire nation, pitches all that aside and says, go and kill all these people, for I think they've conspired against me. When the words of Ahimelech are very clear, he said, I, I didn't do anything wrong. I thought, David, you were in good graces. The king who is responsible for order and justice becomes the giver of injustice. The king who was responsible for maintaining order and law destroyed the law. The king who was responsible for enforcing the law ignored the law, ignored what was right. And further, he pushed his own desires and his own selfish plans above the law of God. Seems like chaos reigned 
at that moment. So whatever the context is going on here, I, you know, if I had to pick, I'd pick this is where David writes this out of. Okay, back to Psalm 11. Because we see the heart of Psalm 11 is really the question that is raised in verse 3. And then it is answered later in the psalm. The question that is raised in verse 3, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Imagine the city of Nob. You know, they've done nothing wrong. They, they, they've just done what they were supposed to do. And along comes Doeg, the Edomite, and all his minions at the order of the king, and they're all wiped out. It certainly seems that the foundations are destroyed at this point. Do we believe, do we trust in, do we think that no matter what the circumstances are around us, that God is in control? Mm. That God is righteous. And that those who have confidence in him will see his face. Now I doubt that any of us have a perfect re record of confidence in the Lord. I mean, some days we've got great confidence in the Lord and other days we're scratching our head going, uh, are you paying attention? Okay. We might intellectually know what Scripture says. We trust in the Lord that he will look out for his own. We trust that, that and we understand it, we might always like it, but all things happen for the good of those who believe, who are called according to his purposes. There are a lot of things that we would not define as good, but yet the Lord allows in our lives as believers... So these are his promises. We must say, well, he must be doing something with me. When will he tell me these things? When will he tell me what good I can expect out of this event? And, and we have to be ready to receive the fact that he may never tell us in this world. He may never explain to us or we may never understand why he allowed these things into our lives. And we have to be good with that. And we have to trust him with that. We may not like it, but that's what the word says. This Psalm 11 reminds us of a temptation to distrust God. A temptation to distrust God. And it shows us that Satan will seek to ruin us through a distrust of God. Charles Spurgeon says, He will employ our dearest friends to argue us out of our confidence. He will use such plausible logic that unless we once for all assert our immovable trust in Jehovah, he will make us like the timid bird which flies to the mountain whenever danger presents itself. We have to be very careful about what counsel we receive from our friends. And I just use friends as, as just one example. We have to say, are they friends who are mature in their faith? Are they friends who are demonstrating their faith? Are they friends who have perhaps been through this same circumstance that we are, have been through and have learned and grown there? And most importantly, does the counsel of our friends adhere to Scripture? Does it adhere to Scripture? I mean, I have sat with people who have said, you know, my friends told me that I need to divorce my spouse. Why? Well, you can do better. Uh, they really aren't treating you the way that you should be treated. Okay, there's somebody out there who will love you and care for you in a way that you should be, that you deserve. Those aren't scriptural issues. Those are feeling issues. Those are what I think issues. And in fact, they go against what God's word says. Does the counsel of our friends adhere to scripture? David's counselor said, David, get out of town. Flee to the mountains. Run away. Okay, run away. 
Times are tough. The only thing that makes sense is for you to run. What kind of man is David, though? David is a warrior. David's the guy who stood in front of Goliath with what? A sling and a couple stones. But mostly he put on the armor of God. Okay? He had that on him. And, and you know, Saul tried to put his armor on. Remember, Saul was a head and shoulders above everybody else, and David was not that big. Um, so his, he looked like a little kid wearing his dad's stuff. And he says, I can't go out in this. I can't function. He says, I go out and trusting in the Lord. Spurgeon says, there is no such word as impossibility in the language of faith. That martial grace knows how to fight and conquer, but she knows not how to flee. Martial grace, as, as that word is used in, in Spurgeon's times, means military grace, the grace that moves forward. You know, Jesus says at Caesarea Philippi, he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. Okay? That doesn't mean that hell will be attacking the church. What it means is that the gates of hell cannot stand when the church moves forward under the power of the Holy Spirit. They cannot stand. The church will be victorious. Why? Uh, read the end of the book. Okay, <laughs> that's, what, that's what it says here at the end, that we win. We don't win, Christ wins, but, but he's called us, made us his own. There we go. Okay. So, verse 3. Look at verse 3 in particular. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is the question that we have to ask ourselves. What shall we do when laws are not upheld? What shall we do when evil seems to run unchecked or runs amok within our world? What shall we do when the Bible is undermined or disregarded? What shall we do when certain segments of the church should pay no attention to what Scripture says and make it up as, as they go? Fit the, change the Bible, change the meaning to fit their own desires. What do we do when the values of our family that we've, we've held dear and, and generations back have held dear suddenly, suddenly seem to be crumbling away? No longer carrying any weight in the world. Well, some say that's the time when Christians need to come together and, and, and get in their little group and their holy huddle and, and really do their own thing because let society deteriorate out there. Oh. Some say run away, create your own little Christian subculture. Be safe in there. But, but David doesn't do that. He doesn't run away. He doesn't flee the mountains. He stays where he is. He faces the evil, and he trusts in the Lord. That's what the call for us to do is. During times of stable governments, we'll, just, we'll go because Romans talks about this, stable governments and established laws, the righteous have looked to civil government because the Lord says he puts civil governments in place. And we are to obey the laws up until the point where they deviate from God's word. Okay? And that's great when we have a, a, you know, in our society, as an example, a democratically elected uh, government, we've got rules, we've got laws, and, and they, they're, they're supposed to be um, based upon a Judaic Christian worldview. What happens when it moves from a Judaic Christian worldview to a purely secular worldview? What happens if the laws change that no longer reflect anything from scripture because there is one ultimate truth and that is from the Lord and what happens if we start to make Randy's truth as the law of the land well, I tell you you don't want Randy's truth 
In the same sense, I don't want your truth as the law of the land because your truth might change to benefit yourself or, or your friends. I mean, the Old Testament is full of times when the poor came seeking judgment and they'd come to the city gates and that's where the city fathers would sit and that's where they'd have uh, here the trials and the court cases, so to speak. And before the poor guy got there, the rich guy would come up to the judge and they would have a little powwow and, uh, you know, maybe some coinage would be exchanged or promises made. And then the poor guy would come up and he would not get justice. He would not get justice because the rules were changing. Well, here is something that is unchangeable, something that is always the same. We base our laws in, in, in what the Lord says, then we know we've got right and we've got wrong. We've got walking in his will and walking outside of his will. Okay? You know, how, how do we see this? Well, I, I've got friends who live in Chicago. I don't know why they live in Chicago. Um, you know, <laughs> And I, why don't they? Why do they live in Chicago? It, all you have to do is look at the news. If you go back a couple weeks, every weekend it seems to be the same. And, and these were just a couple weekends ago: fourteen killed, eight killed, fifteen killed, twenty-two shot, seventeen shot, twenty-eight shot. Labor Day, it was kind of a low. There were only three killed on Labor Day weekend, but there were thirty-seven who were shot in Chicago. Do you live in Chicago? Do you want to flee? Well, I want to flee. I don't want to live in Chicago. Gee, okay. And, and most of these people, well, not most of these people, many of these people were simply bystanders who were killed while others were doing evil. How do we view God's control in the midst of this? Should we stay and fight? You know, we've got radicalized Muslims who are lining up, you know, hundreds of soldiers and killing them and cutting people's heads off. What do we do there? Do we run away, flee to the mountains? Do we stand and fight? How do we respond to these things? Do we stick our heads in the sand? Do we hide behind our oceans? Oceans keeps, keeps us safe. No, no evil will get here. There's plenty of evil here, okay? Plenty of evil here. But Psalm 11 says, well, we don't flee. We put our trust in the Lord. Turn back a page or two to Psalm 8. We read a little bit of it earlier. This is, this is such, uh, uh, such a great psalm, and we'll... We'll be in and out of Psalm 8 a lot as we study because there's so much there. Look at verse 3. When I consider thy heavens and the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him and the son of man that thou dost care for him? Yet thou hast made him a little lower than God and dost crown him with glory and majesty. Thou dost make him to rule over the works of thy hands Put all things under his feet, sheep, oxen, etc., etc. Now look at it, it specifically says that the Lord has made him a little lower than God. It doesn't say that God has made him a little higher than the sheep and the oxen. Now, why in the world would it be so specific about something like that? Because in a sense, if, if we just look at it this way, here's the heavenly place, here's God, and here's the animals, and here's man. We're just a little lower than here. Why? So that our eyes and our countenance and our thoughts might be directed up towards what we're made a little lower than. If it's said here, and you're made just a little higher than the animals, then we could look and go, oh, yeah, yeah, there's my dog, I like him, but I'm smarter than he is, most of the time. 
Okay? They're the animals. I'm better than they are. No, we're called to, our eyes are called to look to the heavenly places and, and the things of the Lord and set our countenance and set our goals there. Not so that just as long as I'm better than the animals. No. Not just to be better than the animals. I want to strive to be as the Lord is. As the Lord is. Being made in God's image, it's our privilege, it's our responsibility to look upward to the heavenly places, to the heavenly beings, rather than downward and become increasingly like the animals and the beasts. Uh, one place we've got to go, Daniel chapter 4. Daniel, Ezekiel, Daniel, chapter 4. This is the classic statement of the secular humanist. The classic statement of the secular humanist in Daniel, chapter 4. This is Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar's the man. He's the biggest king that there is. And he's a builder and he's done an incredible amount. He's just, he's just done so much and he's, he's built and he's achieved and, and he says, look what I've made. So I'm the greatest thing in the world. Look at uh, verse 31. Or you better go back to uh, 28. There's been a dream. There's been interpretation of the dream. He's paid no attention to it. Verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? What happens next? He eats grass like a cow. Just like the dream, just like the prophecy was said back in the earlier sections. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And then what? A year later it came to pass? Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Right away, boom. Here you have somebody who thinks he's just the top of the heap. And the Lord says, no, you're not. You have to remember who is really in charge here. Yes, it may seem like the world is going right down the tubes, but the Lord is yet in charge. Back to Psalm 11. The Lord in his holy temple, the Lord is in the throne in heaven. This is not a physical place, so to speak, as so much as David is referring to a place of judgment. The Lord sits in his temple, sits on his holy throne and tests and tries men, inspecting, improving. The context of this judgment is like the context of a, a trial in which the righteous are approved. They're given the strength to, to see it through. We're called to live righteously, to defend the things of Christ, and know that God is in control. Spurgeon says, all events are under the control of providence, the hand of God's providence in this world. 
Consequently, all trials of our outward life are traceable at once to the great first cause. That's the Heavenly Father. Out of the golden gate of God's ordinance and the armies of trial march forth in array, clad in their iron armor, armed with weapons of war. All providences are doors to trial. Even our mercies, like roses, have their thorns. The trials which come from God are sent to, to prove and to strengthen our graces, so at once to illustrate the power of divine grace, to test the genuineness of our virtues, and to add to their energy. What do trials do? They illustrate the providence and the power of divine grace. They test the genuineness of our faith. They add to our energy. Our Lord, in his infinite wisdom and superabundant love, sets so high a value upon his people's faith that he will not screen them from those trials by which faith is strengthened. You hear that? God loves us so much. He puts such a high value upon us that he will not protect us from the trials that will strengthen our faith. You would never have possessed the precious faith which now supports you if the trial of your faith had not been like unto fire. If you are a tree that never would have rooted so well if the wind had not rocked you to and fro and made you take firm hold upon the precious truth of the covenant of grace. While the wheat sleeps comfortably in the husks, it is useless to man. It must be threshed out of its resting place before it can be of value. You understand, the threshing sled has to run over it, has to crush it. The, the kernel and the grain has to come out. Then it is of use. We don't like the threshing sled. We don't like the fire of trial. We don't like the fact that we look at the world and think, you know, the foundations are destroyed, Lord. Where are you? What are you doing? Aren't you paying attention? He says, I'm running the sled over you because I've got work for you to do. I've got things that only you can do, and you can only do them once you have been tested. Once you have been tried, once your attention is fully focused upon my ability to sustain you and care for you. Thus it is well that God tries the righteous, for it causes them to grow in the riches of our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we look at the world around us and we wonder, what, what is going on? But yet, your hand of providence touches everything. Are you in control? Of course you are in control. Do we understand it all? No. There's no guarantee. There's no promise that we will understand it. The promise is that you are faithful. The promise is that you are righteous, that your judgments are true, they are good, that your will is perfect. The promise is that you sent the Holy Spirit to comfort us, to empower us to achieve what you lay before us, to open our eyes to what is true. Lord, there are many hard things in our lives. Many times when we feel like all I'm getting is the threshing sled on top of me, crushing me. Where is the kernel that's going to come out? Where is this, this work and, and purpose that you have in my life, Lord? Uh, haven't I been purified enough? Haven't I been crushed enough? But yet you are there shaping and forming us. Lord, for those who feel like they're being crushed today, for those who feel like they've been tested and tested and tested and, and are waiting for that 
the evidence of that refinement. Come upon them with your comfort. Remind them of who you are and what you are doing. That there are purposes in all things. That they should rest in you. And they should take comfort in the fact that you will not screen us from the trials that increase our faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.